Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com, the tool that makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and goals, and the Wondersuite tools will automatically lay out your WordPress website or store in minutes. Seriously. From there, you can customize your design, pick your brand colors and add blocks, no custom theme or coding required. You'll get content suggestions that you can keep or revise. And with Yoast SEO built in, we automatically help you get found in search engines. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins to an AI powered help bot, our built-in tools make WordPress wonderful for everyone. Whether you're a beginner or a pro, you can join over 2 million Bluehost users. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. That's bluehost.com slash wondersuite. All rise. Welcome to the Cyber Law and Business Report. Get the top story on the hot-button internet legal topics of the day. This is your home for the latest on internet law and policy. Hear the latest net trends impacting business and have your questions answered right here. This is the Cyber Law and Business Report. Now, please welcome your host, the founder of the Internet Law Center, Bennett Kelly. Good morning, and this is Bennett Kelly. Welcome to another edition of Cyber Law and Business Report. We're broadcasting live as usual from sunny California here, the Internet Law Center in the heart of Silicon Beach in downtown Santa Monica. Um, thank you again for joining us. Please be seated. We have a great show for you today. Um, we're going to start off talking about the Ellen Powell trial that has um, transfixed much of the country, if not the world, um, but definitely has um, got the attention of Silicon Valley. Um, and then in the second half, we're going to be talking to author David Gels about his new book, Mindful Work. But with us is Kristen Brown um, with the San Francisco Chronicle. Are you with us, Kristen? Hi. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you for joining us. And um, it, I... I guess I should start before talking about the trial. Have you um, have you covered a trial before? Have you ever sat through a trial? Yes, I actually started out my career as a, a courts reporter um, with the ALM publications. So this oh. was sort of a return to the early part of my career. It was kind of fun to be back in the courtroom. I, I was I was wondering just in general. I mean, I mean, people have different images visions of what a trial actually is like and some parts are interesting but some parts are extremely mundane if not boring and you sat through 24 days yes well i wasn't there every day i was there i would say about 80 percent of the days and it's and it's funny because you know your editor who hasn't necessarily ever sat through a trial was sitting there like give me give me the gory details were people yelling were people screaming and i think a lot of people who, who don't cover trials or you know, have ever sat in a trial, don't realize that even in an exciting trial, a lot of it is, you know, just waiting for the, the judge to respond to a motion or, you know, most much of this is very mundane, even in a very exciting trial. Although I did pop in for a day, and this, this did have one interesting facet in that the jury could ask questions. That made yeah, it somewhat that, different. That was- that was not unprecedented, but it was a really great strategy, I think, in a trial like this, in which you have people who are not necessarily familiar with the technology industry or venture capital trying to decide a case which hinges in part on how venture capital works, right? The question of was Alan Powell a good fit for a venture capital firm? And it's hard to understand 
how to answer that question if you don't understand how venture capital works. So that, I think, was actually really crucial to this trial, that the jury could ask questions. You know, one of the funniest questions that they they asked was uh, the, the idea of what a thought leader is kept coming up. They really wanted to understand, you know, what is this made-up Silicon Valley word since everybody kept saying the problem with Ellen Powell was she wasn't a thought leader. That was a, a really funny funny moment. At one point, a, a PR person actually uh, put out Ellen trial, Ellen, excuse me, Ellen Powell trial bingo because there was so much jargon that the jury was trying to wrap that around. <laughs> so, um, we got ahead of ourselves a little bit. I was just curious about that point. But if for in a nutshell, the um, Cliff Notes or USA version of what this case was about. Okay, great. So this was not uh, a, a sexual discrimination. This was this was a, a gender discrimination case. It was not a sexual harassment case, and I think that that gets confused a little bit because there awesome. were harassment allegations that were discussed during the course of the trial. But essentially, Ellen Powell was a, a former junior partner at the venture capital firm, uh, Kleiner uh, Perkins. And she alleged that um, she was discriminated against for her gender uh, in, in several ways. You know, one, one of the key things that people kept referencing in the trial was, um, you know, women at one point were asked to take notes. There were, there were a whole bunch of partners in the room, and the two female partners were the ones that were asked to take notes. So there was stuff like that. Um, and then she also alleges that she was retaliated against for bringing up both um, the problems of gender and for speaking out about her relationship uh, with with a partner who later harassed another woman at the firm. And um, it, and Kleiner's defense was basically, no, that that wasn't why you were fired. And, and she was fired after she filed her complaint. Um, the defense right. was you, you weren't a good fit. You, you, um, you either you didn't speak up enough or you spoke up too much. They, they seem to have alleged both. And, um, and that really what, what it was is you just didn't get, you didn't play nice with others. Right, exactly. Throughout the trial, the defensive strategy was to characterize how as, you know, somebody who was difficult to work with, maybe a little prickly. Um, you know, she was consistently told in her performance reviews and, you know, by senior partners in the firm that she needed to be a, quote, thought leader, you know, which we talked about a minute ago, that she needed to speak up more, that she needed to, quote, own the room. That's one thing that they wrote in one of her performance reviews. And what made this case so so difficult, I think, for anybody who was watching it, you know, in, in the audience of the courtroom, in the jury, is that, you know, as, as somebody just looking at the scant evidence available, um, you know, the performance reviews, emails, it was very difficult to tell whether she was perceived as a difficult to work with person because of uh, pre-existing notions of what a woman should act like in the office, right? Because of right. bias or whether she really was genuinely difficult to, to work with. I mean, it really could swing either way. You look at a performance review and it says you have sharp elbows. Well, does that mean she actually had sharp elbows and was difficult to work with? Or does it mean that women aren't supposed to be aggressive and therefore she was perceived as having sharp elbows when really she was just doing what a venture capitalist does, which is, you know, be pretty aggressive. <laughs> Right. I mean, it's it's not um, a, a profession for wall, wallflowers. And I, I believe there was one point when uh, a client of Perkins executive was on the stand 
And, um, you know, some of the attributes that um, he was criticizing um, her for, he actually appraised a man in, in an evaluation for. And then, so that was kind of the... The thing, the, the things that would uh, a man would be praised for, she was being dis, um, discredited for. Yes, uh, it's interesting because um, the the plaintiff's strategy really seemed like it was hammering home uh, that that um, mismatch in the performance reviews. Right, that that Powell was told she had sharp elbows that she was told she couldn't own the room, right? So sort of contradictory things, right? Which speaks to, you know, what's, what's called the double bind when you talk about women in the office, that we could neither be, um, we can't be too aggressive, but you know, we can't be too soft spoken. So, so it's this thin line that woman walks. So they tried to demonstrate that in the performance reviews. And they also tried to demonstrate that similar phrasing sometimes, in some cases, the exact same phrasing was used on performance reviews for Powell and her male colleagues. And that really seemed to be the plaintiff's strategy to really hammer, hammer home, you know, in, in these documents, uh, the, the inequity. And performance reviews um, typically um, in, in gender discrimination cases and in, in the workplace have been very important. You know, there's that PricewaterhouseVersusCooper in which the performance reviews actually really were the thing that won the case because they're you, one piece of solid evidence. You know, it's, it's one of very few documents that exist right. in a case like this. And um, I think that juries are often very wise to the fact that, that the language that is used to describe women, um, even if it, it is perceived, you know, by the person writing it as a criticism or how somebody to prove that, that improve that biases can exist there. Um, but what was interesting was in conversations with the jury afterwards, they said that the performance reviews were the most important thing for them. Uh, this is one jury member in particular said that, you know, what they did was they, they disregarded everything the defense said, everything the plaintiff's attorney said, and, and really tried to narrow down and look at the performance reviews of Powell and the performance reviews of her colleagues, what they found was that Powell's performance reviews were, you know, fairly consistent over time, that she was criticized for, for the same things, the sharp elbows, the need to own the room. Mm-hmm. But her male colleagues that were in the beginning criticized for those things um, seemed to, based on their performance reviews, improve that those things were no longer mentioned and it's you know that's it, that's just such a difficult criteria it seems to 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 judge whether gender discrimination existed because that that proves that her male colleagues eventually you know were not criticized for those things it's not clear really you know even though the, this is the the evidence that the jury used that 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 doesn't mean that Powell was criticized for those things based on biases about her gender. But that's such a, a subtle thing for a jury be, to be able to tell. It's really difficult to, to tell that at all outside of, you know, a scientific study in which you can do A-B testing. Right. And and I think you put your finger on that in your own column and where you, you raise that question. You know, um, how do you separate um, you know, this whole concept of culture fit, how do you separate what you call um, a jargony shorthand for whether an employee reflects a company's values, but it also can be a thinly veiled cover for bias? Where's that line? 
And I right. think a lot and of the media felt that the jury didn't quite appreciate how fine that line was. Right. Well, I wouldn't say that they didn't appreciate it. I think that the jury members were, were very conscientious of that this was a very difficult thing to assess. I think that's why they chose to focus on, you know, a very, a very small pile of evidence. The one really concrete, consistent thing that they had to look at, right. Versus all the heat that she said. Um, but, but it is true that, you know, it is difficult for, for somebody standing on the outside to judge whether a firm's culture wasn't a good fit for Powell because, it wasn't a good fit for women or perhaps, you know, a lot of women um, or two women really testified that Connor Perkins was a great place to work. So maybe it's, it's not a fit, a good fit for a particular kind of woman. Right. Okay. Well, I was going to yeah. say is what's, what's interesting here is that, um, you know, there were, yes, there were, there are other women, um, but the, even they weren't given the top spots, you know? And so, Klein, you know, Clyde Perkins was able to highlight, you know, some of their star women, but they weren't really getting dinged so much for the fact that they weren't giving them some of the same roles. Um, and, and even one of the jurors that voted for them said he still felt that you know, the workplace uh, was not a good environment. Right. And that was a really interesting thing. There was one juror who said after the trial that he wished that they could have somehow dinged Kleiner Perkins for being an unfair environment to women, that, that they felt that, you know, based on testimony on the stand, there there definitely was some gender inequity that it just did not apply specifically to why Powell um, was not promoted and then ultimately fired, right? Which is what made this this case difficult to wrap your head around at times because you know both both in the courtroom and outside of the courtroom and the way that the trial was discussed, it was often talked about. As you know, we're putting the venture capital world on trial. Right. We're putting or Silicon, Silicon Valley, Valley on trial. Yeah. Um, and the truth is that you know Silicon Valley wasn't on trial. Ellen Ellen Powell, in some ways, is who was who was on trial, right? Yes. You know, how good a job did she do at her job? And you know, the the, the jury, it seems, felt like you know, in in a trial of Kleiner Perkins' treatment of of women. Maybe the women would have won, but the Ellen Powell did not um, right. win. Who who showed up on the stand? Was which of the Ellen Powell that they've characterized? Um, which one showed up on the stand when, for the most part? Well, you know, Ellen Ellen was she was she was really two people on the stand. You know, when she was being questioned by her own attorneys. She was incredibly composed. She was very polite. Um, every time you saw her outside of trial, she was smiling. It's actually funny, you know, every single photograph almost that was was taken of her, you know, by the Associated Press, by our photographer, she's always smiling, you know, because it seemed like she was putting out there this, this idea that she is not the woman Kleiner Perkins is characterizing, right? She's not prickly. She's friendly. Right. She's smiling. Even during, you know, this grueling five-week trial. But when Lynn Hermley, the um, Kleiner Perkins attorney, questioned her, she did get a little bit prickly. And, you know, you did see some elements of what Kleiner characterized in their defense on the stand. You really saw her being, her being short, her being unwilling to answer certain questions. There was this one really funny moment where 
her and Hermely got into this this very mundane, catty argument about what the definition of a book being in the trunk is, um, or what the meaning of it was. It, there was this this book that was discussed um, at length during the trial that a, a partner gave Ellen Powell as a gift, and it was uh, Leonard Cohen's Book of Longing, which you know. It, contains some erotic poetry, it contains some erotic imagery. Um, the the plaintiff's attorney's uh, point was this is not an appropriate item to give somebody in a workplace, really anybody, especially not a man to a woman, right? That there were right. some sexual overtones there. Um, and they got in this little snippy argument where they, they, they tried to determine what driving around with it in the trunk was, you know, like, did you, it, it was, it was very, it was very strange and completely irrelevant to the trial, but you really <laughs> did see this sort of snippy, um, catty persona come out a little bit, which I imagine was very, very damaging to her. Um, now very quickly, um, before we go to break, you know, this case, you're a reporter for the San Francisco Chronicle. And um, and then, you know, so this trial isn't just happening in the courtroom. This cap trial is happening all around you. Um, it was seen, and how involved was the city, you know, in terms of what was it like being a local reporter at this trial and being and being amongst, you know, the community? And, uh, you know, and what, go ahead. Yeah. You know, it's interesting. Um, this trial is very closely watched um, by the local tech community. I'm I'm not, you know, quite sure how 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 much people outside of the tech industry care about this. But you know, as I mentioned before, this trial really came at a point where we've we've just started to openly discuss and get angry about the position of women and also racial um, minorities in in the tech industry, right? Uh, last May, Google was the first company to put out the its internal high employee numbers, it's diversity figures, mm-hmm. you know, there are almost no women there, especially in engineering and leadership positions. And, you know, many companies followed suit and you see this really damning portrait of an industry in which there are very few people at the top and in engineering positions who are not white or Asian men, right? And so this trial comes at this point where we've just started to discuss it and all eyes are on it. But what's very interesting is that Silicon Valley was clearly very nervous about this trial because when you would go out in the community, when you would go to a a tech event or, you know, when I would meet a source for coffee, everybody wanted to talk about the trial. On social media, um, you know, there was almost no chatter about the trial because people were very afraid to come out in favor of either side. And I think that after the trial, We've we've still seen that many people have come out in support of Ellen Powell. There was a hashtag that became popular. Um, it was hashtag Thank You Ellen, and right. uh, a, a group took out a full page ad in a local paper, not not ours, a Palo Alto paper, that just Cheaper. said Thank You Ellen. <laughs> but but there were but almost nobody has come out on the record in support of Kleiner Perkins because there there is so much nervousness about what this trial. Exposed. What does that mean for? Oh, actually, we should. I'm getting a note. We should take a break. We'll come. We'll be right back after these messages. You're listening to Cyber Law and Business Report. 
Stay tuned for more of the Cyber Law Entus Report after this brief recess for our sponsors. Whether you are an online business or domain name investor, you need access to the best names. With over 270 million domains already registered, finding the right names at the best price requires a great wingman. Namejet.com puts you in the pilot seat by giving you fast and unparalleled access to some of the best premium and expired domain names on earth. As the number one domain name auction platform, Namejet.com is the best place to find domains for your business or investment. So light the afterburners to the domain name aftermarket and fly over to Namejet.com at box speed to get great domains today. Namejet.com. Great websites today need expert web design and development and need to be e-commerce ready and mobile friendly. But building a marketable and profitable website can be an uphill climb. Ready to make your new website or replace your existing website? Think Orange as the new way to get in the black. Orange Hill Development works with Fortune 500 companies and offer the same top quality development service at a fraction of what other providers charge. Brands like Absolute, Carlsberg, and Nestle trust Orange Hill Development. Find out why you should trust your website with Orange Hill. Contact Orange Hill for a consultation today at orangehilldevelopment.com. When you started your business, you first listened to your professors. Now that your business is growing and gaining ground, you only seek out professionals. PPC Professionals, an industry leader for highly optimized search marketing campaigns with over 30 years of combined management experience. Our professional approach to every campaign helps you find every avenue of revenue so that you can not only stay ahead of your competitors, but get a return on your investment and increase your bottom line. PPC Professionals, personal, professional, PPC services, ppcprofessionals.com. The best gavel-to-gavel legal news and information on the net is right here. This is the Cyber Law and Business Report, only on webmasterradio.fm. Just as, as usual, we have uh, information on our guests today in both segments on our blog at cyberlawradio.wordpress.com. And there's a link to a primer on the trial um, at the Internet Law Center um, blog site as well. Um, before we left, we were talking about the fact that no one is really stepping forward for Kleiner Perkins. And um, and they, you know, for those who aren't familiar, they at one point were the kind of the New York Yankees of Sand Hill Road in terms of venture firms. Um, in light of what they've gone through in this trial, and, you know, ironically, they came in with having being kind of the the gender, you know, friendly, or at least they had the the least worst record in terms of women and in, um, in Silicon Valley. Um, did 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 they win the trial? I mean, they won the trial, but did they win? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, I think that they won it as much as they could have won it, if that makes sense, right? Right. Um, but I don't think that. Y- you could be in Kleiner's position, right? A, a venture capital firm, which, you know, has fallen from, from grace to a certain extent before this. They're, they're right. known for their big hits in the dot-com era, but they forayed into, you know, clean tech, into energy, and they have not had as many of the big hits that made them, you know, the the Yankees right. since, since then. So they're all, their reputation is already a little bit tarnished in terms of, you know, their their reputation as venture capitalists and and then you have details come out on the stand 
you know, about their business dealings in addition to about how they treated women. And I think that it's very, it's very risky for either party in an employment case to go to trial, right? That's why so many of these things settle. And that's why this trial was such a big deal is that right. there was a trial at all, right? So many of these things, they never get in the media because they uh, settle before a formal complaint is even filed. Or, you know, the, the biggest case that there was before this was the, the Tinder lawsuit mm-hmm. in which um, a former uh, co-founder said that she was not called a founder in media and that she was generally discriminated against and retaliated for a bad breakup with one of the other founders. And that, that case settled, you know, because people do not want to go to trial because they do not want all that stuff out there on the stand laid bare for all to see. And I think that we found out a lot of things that were damaging to Kleiner's business reputation, like the fact that they were considering investing in Twitter in 2007 and they waited until 2010. And in venture capital, um, you want to be first because that's where right. the big returns are, right? And that's also, you know, the sort of the ego game of venture capital is about being first, about seeing the thing before everybody sees it. Um, and a lot of stuff came out about their business dealings in addition to the way they treated women. And I don't think it was great for Kleiner. But I some people have come forward to me personally in the aftermath of the trial. I haven't written about this uh, at this point, but there have been a couple of women who have stepped forward, most of them, you know, uh, without wanting to give their names, who have, who have said in support of Kleiner, you know, that there are so many terrible um, venture capital firms in which there aren't a single woman, woman in which, you know, entrepreneurs go in and pitch and there isn't a single female face. Uh, and Kleiner Perkins was not one of those places. So, but you know, is, I, I think that, sorry, go ahead. That aside, I think if, you know, one, if I'm, if I'm in Kleiner Perkins, if I'm one of the shareholders or I do business with them, you know, and then, or separately, if I'm just someone else in Silicon Valley, if, you know, one is a shareholder, I'm thinking, you know, did we win? You know, why, you know, would settlement really have been worse, even though I know she was asking for a lot of money? And and given the damage it's done. And secondly, and I, I, one column has pointed out, so often these cases, you know, get a little bit of attention and then they settle and they go away. They don't build any momentum that way. And by having this on trial for 24 days and now having everyone talk about it, you know, like shows like these, um, they've really created a momentum for other cases going forward. And so everyone else in Silicon Valley is probably saying, gee, thanks, Kleiner Perkins. Right. Well, I think that Kleiner Perkins took this to trial because, and, and you know, they tried to not take it to trial. You know, they tried tried for arbitration. But um I think they decided to take it to trial rather than settle for the, the sum, uh, whatever sum Powell was asking for, which has not been disclosed. I think that they thought that they could win it, and I think they firmly believed that they had not discriminated against Powell or other women at the firm. But I also think that the, the real truth is that though this may tarnish their reputation in some sense, uh, what was exposed on the sound, you know, it's not... In, in the end, it's probably not going to harm their ability to do what they do, which is give people money. 
and then make money from giving people money. You know, I, I, I did a story um, on this. You know, I, I talked to a lot of entrepreneurs, you know, what do you think about this? And would you still take money from client persons? And regardless of their thoughts on, you know, what happened, they, they, what they care about is the firm's investment track record. And, you know, like I said before, that has been tarnished too, but the trial isn't going to change very much. Um, whether or not entrepreneurs are willing to take money from Kleiner Perkins. And in the end, that's what matters for their success. And that's a very good point. Now, what about, you know, I've seen some reports on the flip side is that um, doors may be shutting to women in the venture firms because of you know, this. That, that is an argument that people make um, after every single discrimination case. It is something that uh, people said after affirmative action in the civil rights era. And, you know, honestly, it is almost never true because discriminating against women or minorities or anybody is is illegal. And um, I think that you will find that, you know, maybe there will be some people who don't hire women uh, because of the outcomes of this case because they are afraid of a lawsuit. And it's true that, you know, uh, hiring discrimination cases is very, very difficult to, to prove. Um, and to win in court, but I think that the the repercussions um, in terms of not hiring women or not hiring minorities or disabled people after a discrimination case are generally overblown. Now, it, it, Ellen Powell hasn't indicated whether she's going to appeal, and you know, from what I've read, there really isn't much hope of an appeal. Have you heard much in that regard, or even you know, it's not unusual for cases to settle even after a trial. Right. You know, I, I spoke uh, last week with Ellen Powell's attorneys, and they are considering uh, an appeal. They have um, they have 30 days from when they get the official, you know, verdict, right? Right. And I think they just received that recently. So they have 30 days to decide, and um, they haven't made up their mind. I think that uh, an appeal would be very difficult only because um, in court, the judge ruled heavily in favor of Powell. They blo- he blocked almost all of Kleiner Perkins' motions for dismissal and motions to exclude evidence or include evidence. Um, and so the only way they would be able to appeal would be based on motions um, that happened pre- pre-trial. And I don't, I don't know in the full extent of this, but I do think that there is not a lot of things for them to appeal in order to appeal. We only have a few minutes left. You are the founding editor of the magazine The Caravan in New Delhi? Well, a founding editor. A not, founding, not editor. founding editor. Yes, I, yes. I went there. It was my first job out of college. I packed my one suitcase, I went to New Delhi, and I helped start a politics and culture magazine. In New Delhi, wow, that's quite impressive. And then I have to let you plug your, your one of the, your, your, it's not quite a Nobel Prize, but it's close. Um, you've won a chili contest using veget- only vegetarian chili. Yes, I did win a Brooklyn chili contest with a chili that had no meat. So I will tell you guys on air the secret to this. I used um, Lapsang Suchong tea, which is a very smoky Chinese tea in the chili, which sort of, I think, got some of the, the meatiness a- across. So that is the secret to my uh, award-winning chili recipe. 
Oh, congratulations on that. Now, uh, if people <laughs> want to find you, I know you're on, you're at Twitter at Kristen uh, Kristen V Brown. Do you have a blog or a, a website where people should go? Um, my personal website is Kristen V Brown, but uh, I'm the only Kristen V Brown reporter out there. So if you just stick my name into Google, um, my all my work at the Chronicle and elsewhere will come up. The world famous San Francisco Chronicle, which gave us Chris Matthews. Um, but I want to thank you very much for joining us, and um, it's been a very interesting discussion. Um, do you see, I mean, it's been two weeks. I mean, are people still talking about this now? People are still talking about it. I think that um, I think that in three months or six months, we'll see a revival of the conversation because at that point, we will have a better sense of what the real impact of this trial is, right? People want to speculate on how this trial is going to change the valley. And, you know, I, I, if I was a entrepreneur with a startup or if I was a venture capital firm after this, I would go out and hire a real HR person. No question. But yes. I think that in a few months, we'll have a better sense of what really happened in the aftermath of this. And I think that's what's going to be really, really interesting. Well, I think it's true. I think especially because all the all the parallel stories that are going on, you know, from the Uber to all the other stories, um, it, it's one kind of bigger narrative. But I want to thank you very much for joining us, and I hope you'll come back someday. But um, and I'll definitely, hopefully, um, try your chili. <laughs> but thank you again, um, and I appreciate you coming. We're going to take a short break. When we come back, we'll have David Gels on Mindful Work. Stay tuned for more of the Cyber Law and Business Report after this brief recess for our sponsors. Introducing Rumble, the smart mobile management system, the first end-to-end mobile platform where you can make real-time app modifications from a point-and-click dashboard. Want to change the design of your app? Point-click, and it's live in real-time. Want to change the ad map of your app? Point-click, and it's live in real-time. Want to change the content mix of your app? Point-click, and it's live in real time. Power your mobile business with Rumble. Are you ready to rumble? Visit www.rumble.me. Building better search engine rankings takes the right formula. Tracking those rankings is super simple. All you need is authoritylabs.com. Authority Labs uses automated daily rank tracking tools to monitor your site's performance or leverage their API to build your own tools. No matter what animal-labeled algorithms affect your ranking, you should be using Authority Labs. Unlimited users for no additional cost and white labeling can help keep your clients updated and save countless hours of creating reports. Whether you're running sites with just a few or millions of keywords, what you need is authoritylabs.com. The Web Marketing Association presents Great Moments in Website History. 1994, Trey G browses with a high-speed 56K modem. 1997, Donnie W. discovers scrolling. 2006, Smudges the Cat becomes an animated GIF. What is your great moment in website history? The Web Marketing Association is now accepting entries for the International Web Award Competition. Web Marketing Award winners receive an image plaque, certificate of achievement, higher visibility for your company, valuable feedback from our expert judges, and links to your site from the highly ranked Web Award site. Visit www.webaward.org to nominate your company, site, or organization. The call for entries has begun, and the deadline to enter is May 29th, 2015. Go to www.webaward.org and sign up today. Looking for a better way to get more traffic and interaction to your Facebook page? Imagine Facebook interactivity on your page like you've never seen. Introducing your new Facebook marketing fix, 
SoSocial, the new and revolutionary way to easily manage and automate your Facebook contest and sweepstakes. Create a fun, easy-to-win contest by writing a simple Facebook post. Watch your post go more viral and generate loads of interaction. Track your traffic and generate email lists with ease. SoSocial is mobile-friendly and complies with Facebook terms of service. Let SoSocial give your Facebook page some flash today. Zoom over to zosocial.com. The best gavel-to-gavel legal news and information on the net is right here. This is the Cyber Law and Business Report, only on webmasterradio.fm. And we're back. This is Bennett Kelly. You're listening to Cyber Law and Business Report. Um, We're going to start our second segment. I want to do a quick shout-out, though, to the Providence College Friars, who have just won over the weekend the Frozen Four. They won the first uh, NCAA hockey title, and congratulations to the boys in my hometown. So, um, But we have a great guest for our second half, um, David Gels, and he's a reporter with the New York Times who has a new book um, that has got a lot of people talking called Mindful Work. And David, are you with us? Yeah, hi. Thanks for having me. Thank you for joining us. And so you've, you you launched this book. Tell us what led you to do it. Well, I've always been interested in meditation. I'd practiced for about 15 years. And then as a reporter with the Financial Times, I started hearing about some businesses practicing. I went out and wrote a big story about General Mills, which is practicing meditation in the office. And that then got me started on the book. And um, so the book just came out in March. Um, what has the reception been so far? It's been great so far. I mean, people are taking it seriously, which uh, it really says something, that businesses um, are embracing mindfulness and meditation in a serious way. I think says to you that this is a sea change moment, that uh, practices that were once considered unconventional, maybe even new agey, are squarely part of the mainstream now. And, and so as you approach businesses on this what what's like when do you when can you tell you're starting to win them over um i mean listen there are some skeptics out there and i i appreciate that and they have every right to raise doubts about it but wherever i've gone to talk about the book people have shown up and really wanted to engage in serious discussion and that to me is just a sign of the times i'm i'm joe ceo and you're telling me that if if i allow if i enable mindfulness that my my employees will be more productive they'll be more fulfilled um and and so why why shouldn't i try that is it that that's the message well listen i i don't think that every business should practice mindfulness i'm not sitting here trying to be prescriptive instead i say if there's an organization where it could be appropriate uh i think okay uh, it's worth giving a shot. Um, but I, I don't say to every CEO I meet, you have to do this by any means. What are some examples where you've seen this work well? Well, they're in the book, Mindful Work, How Meditation is Changing Business from the Inside Out. And uh, the range really speaks to the diverse applications of mindfulness in the workplace. It goes from Google, where they're teaching emotional intelligence and social-emotional learning, to Green Mountain Coffee, where line workers in the factory are practicing mindful stretching and yoga before their long 12-hour shifts. So really, no matter what station you're at in the corporate hierarchy, there are applications that could be suitable for you. And you know, is, this, is this relatively 
new here versus in other cultures. You know, it's, you know, for example, Japan has certain regiments that they often do in, in factory settings. And you know, how does this compare to some of the Eastern cultures? Uh, that's a great question, and I think there's inevitably some overlap. But the truth is, um, this is really something new and different. This is not just uh, Eastern traditions being smacked down in the middle of corporate America. Instead, this is really uh, a, a new and original evolution of contemplative practices uh, as they're showing up in big companies. And, it, you know, were they inspired perhaps by some contemplative traditions like Buddhism? Yeah, absolutely. But they're not the same thing. I think that's an important distinction to make. And, and so, um, I mean, I think that's what a lot of people think of when they start when they first think of these things. You said that uh, Henry David Thoreau gets Gell's vote as the earliest New World proponent and inspiration for Beat Generation, Dharma Bums, Jack Gerwick, and Allen Ginsberg. What has been the the thing that people ask you about most, um, or people seem to have the hardest thing getting a handle on this issue? Uh, I don't know that people have a hard time getting a handle on it. Uh, again, I think it's a matter of, do you have some initial skepticism, or yes. uh, are you an enthusiast? Or, uh, but uh, I think it's it's relatively easy to understand, which is that there are uh, the new and increasingly popular set of complementary health practices, which include mindfulness, meditation, yoga, that are gaining traction in the workplace for good reason. It's reducing stress. It's improving productivity. It's making people healthier, even happier. And that, you know, I don't think that's a debate anymore. What, what perhaps is in debate is whether or not you as an individual or an organization or a leader want to be a part of that. But the fact that it's happening, it's, it's beyond, uh, beyond debate at this point. And are there any sectors that are responding to this better than others? I mean, um, actually, this is our fifth year on the show. When we first launched, we had Bill Powers, who had a book on, on a, called Hamlet's Blackberry, about how we need to disconnect from technology um, from time to time. And, you know, in a similar vein, but not necessarily, you know, invoking the, the practices of mindfulness. Um, but he actually, you know, got a really good reception of all, of all places in tech. Yeah, no, that, that's a great book, first of all. And tech, uh, unsurprisingly, is also one of the early adopters of mindfulness practice. And, it, you know, on the one hand, it might seem counterintuitive. They, you might argue, are a source for so much of our distraction. But I think precisely because of that, the need is perhaps most acute. The uh, opportunity for people to use mindfulness and meditation as a way of disconnecting from their devices is powerful, and, and there's real appeal there. And so I, I think it's unsurprising that Silicon Valley is certainly one of the great centers of this movement. Is, is there also generational, you think, too? I mean, Silicon Valley is a younger there, there's really no gender, age, race, or income uh, that is most suited towards mindfulness. Mindfulness and meditation, they don't discriminate. No, but I'm just saying in terms of, in terms of, in terms of as you encounter industries um, and talk no, to... No, I, I, it, it's, it's a truly diverse spectrum of, of individuals who are taking these practices on. What what are you going to do next in terms of you know if you've written this book on mindfulness what next? Uh, well, I've got a, I've got a day job at the New York Times that keeps me pretty busy. <laughs> I can imagine that. Um, but you know, are you thinking of doing a follow up? 
not at this point. Nothing to announce. Nothing to announce. And um, was this, uh, forgive me if I forget, was this your first book? It was. And uh, how was that? I mean, coming to, you know, one decision to write a book and then write it on this topic. Um, how long did it take you? Uh, it took me about two and a half years from the time I got started until the publication date. So as you, um, as you are a reporter and you have a lot of obligations, are you going to be able to you know, travel and promote this book? Yeah, I've been doing a fair amount of travel. Texas, are you coming up for the um, Washington, D.C., Boston? Are you doing the L.A. Book Fair? I'm not, unfortunately, no. Yeah, that's one of the biggers. And um, in Miami, I guess, would be in, in the fall. But um, And so far, I've been looking at the reception. It's been quite favorable, including our friend Ariana spoke very highly of it. But she's been kind of invoking a similar theme, that um, we, we need to kind of have our priorities in terms of what we're trying to achieve in our lives. And um, have you spoken to her about the book? Uh, yeah, no, Ariana's a great supporter. She was kind enough to give me a, a great endorsement, and we've done a few events together in recent months. And um, what are the events? What events do you have coming up soon? Um, I'm speaking in Boston at a couple of events uh, over the next few days. Uh, speaking at New York Insight here in New York City next month, and uh, yeah, the, all the events are listed on my website, which is just davidgallas.com. Great. When people talk to you about what's the thing they're most surprised about when they read the book? I, again, I mean, I think it's the fact that this is part of the mainstream now. Uh, it's maybe surprising, but totally accurate that CEOs from Silicon Valley to the heartland to Wall Street are all taking this seriously. They're embracing this, they're making time for it themselves, and they're promoting it among their employees. Well, um, it's definitely it's a timely book, and it's definitely worthwhile. And um, I want to take you, thank you for taking the time to join us. Um, and um, hope, hopefully, um, you get a great reception. The book just came out. Thank you March, very much. March thirtieth. March ten. March ten. So, um, congratulations on the book, and uh, I encourage everyone to check it out. It's um, available on Amazon and retail outlets. We do have some news updates, and um, want to update you on what's going on in net neutrality. Um, the net neutrality regs became official on um, the 12th, and um, as soon as that was official by the publication of the notice in the Federal Register, um, it was immediately followed by a rash of lawsuits, followed by a, a variety of um, trade associations from the telecommunications industry, and as well as one by AT&T. And so as we saw before, um, that, was, um, that was something that took quite some time. So it's not likely that there'll even be um, arguments until probably 2016 during the, the heat of the presidential election campaign. In addition, there's an important ruling we want to highlight um, that came down this um, last week um, at the U.S. Patent and Trademark Office. And that ruling um, addresses the issue of um, a patent um, for um, a claim patent for blogging, excuse me, for podcasting. And um, that ruling um, came out um, just last week. And um, the determination was that there is the, the, um, the claimant did not hold a patent on podcasting. And so there have been a number of um, high-profile cases, and um, including one involving a number of prominent 
um, podcasts, um, including um, most recently, there was, let me forget the name of the podcast, but it's um, the, um, the host from The Man Show, and um, Adam Carella, um, he had fought this patent troll for a number of weeks and um, ultimately decided that he just couldn't afford um, to continue and he, he settled. Um, to, and while this decision came down, it had said that um, the concept of podcasting is not owned by um, this patent troll. Um, also an important decision coming down, we've had some decisions come down, excuse me, my monitor is freezing, um, but we've had some important decisions come down in the area of um, Section 230 liability um, and also in the area of um, the Americans for Disabilities Act and the extent to which it applies to websites. Um, we will actually be having a guest from the American Federation of Blind to talk about that important decision um, in a few weeks and um, talk about why um, there has been a split in decisions among the circuits as to whether or not it does apply. And um, we will, um, there have been some cases in the Ninth Circuit holding that um, in favor of eBay and Netflix, finding that it did not apply. Um, and so, but there has recently been a case in New Hampshire in which it did apply. A number of important developments go on. We have, um, we'll have more next week on all of these developments, and uh, as well as the latest um, news that may come out in between. Um, and it's been a lot of fun talking about the Ellen Powell trial and it, having been there and seeing how um, transfixed San Francisco was, and also just seeing the reactions um, that's going on on the web. I mean, a lot of prominent women have spoken out about this, um, everyone, including Anita Hill, um, who was at the, herself at the center of a very big um, controversy um, on sexual harassment not so long ago, um, actually quite long ago, not that you mentioned it, but... Um, Margaret Carlson also speaking out, and um, so I encourage you to take a look at the materials in the blog because it, it really is edifying um, in terms of how this is played out and what the ramifications of this verdict will be, um, and that's about all we have for today. Um, I want to thank both our guests, um, David Gels and Linda, um, for joining us, and uh, it has been a real pleasure having them, and so from Bennett Kelly with the Internet Law Center. Um, check out our blog. We have more information on today's show and the guests and um, what you can background on them, their links, as well as uh, materials on both issues. And, um, and be sure to check out the Internet Law Center at internetlawcenter.net. We're here in Santa Monica, and we're happy to serve you. So um, tune in next week to Cyberlaw Business Report. This is Bennett Kelly saying cheerio. Bye-bye. has been a presentation of webmasterradio.fm the world's largest business to business radio and podcast network we welcome you to sample past episodes of this program as well as our complete library of programs on demand or on the air via our 24 7 live audio stream at www.webmasterradio.fm the opinions expressed on this program are those of the guests and hosts and do not necessarily reflect those of WebmasterRadio.fm's management or sponsors. Any rebroadcast or redistribution without authorized consent of WebmasterRadio.fm is prohibited.